Our sermon this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. You can find it on page 8 in the service folder. I'll be referencing that in just a moment. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think about this. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm spiritual, but not religious? You know, I've been pastor in the Austin area for uh, the better part of nine years, and um, when I introduce myself to people, uh, they're not exactly offended that I believe in God and I teach people about God. In fact, you would be surprised that more people are very open to a conversation about spiritual things. But when I ask them about their faith, very often the response I'll get is this, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I think to myself, what does that mean? And really, you have to ask them what it means to them, and you're going to get their answer. Um, but after talking to more and more people uh, in my community that say this, I've learned that they are thinking for themselves. And when you read about what Christian authors and people that are Christians that study society and faith, what they say about that statement, I'm spiritual but not religious, they're really saying two things. Number one, they're rejecting traditional religion, obviously. They're rejecting Christianity, the, the church, or a pastor, or um, some sort of organized religion very often. They look at the hypocrisy in the church, or they look at the mistakes that the church has made over time, and they say, I cannot accept that part. And I do not want to be told what to do. Religion in their mind is regressive. It's uncreative. In their minds, it's a rigid morality, like you're being told what to do, and if you don't do it, then you're bad. No questions asked. You must just obey. That, in their mind, is religion, and that's being rejected in that statement, I'm spiritual but not religious. On the other hand, and this is the interesting thing, for many years, secular society has been telling us that science and human thinking and human logic will get us to a point where we don't need God anymore. And that all of our questions in the past that we had are going to be answered and the, the, the reason for God will just be disappear completely. But when they say, I'm spiritual and not religious, the interesting things and the writers that study this are saying they're rejecting that notion too. That God can be deleted from life. So on the one hand, they're rejecting traditional religion, but they still see a need for God. And they believe they're going to find God. How? Well, through experience, going throughout the world, finding out what's true, what's not true, and maybe they're going to stumble upon God somehow in this spirituality. That's a vague idea. Now, why am I bringing this all up? Because in John chapter 1, we don't meet an idea or a philosophy. We meet people that are searching for the truth and they're searching for God, and they find it in a person, in a person first. And whether you have heard that saying before, I'm spiritual or not religious, or you've heard your neighbor say it, or maybe you're watching this or listening to this and you have yourself believed that or believe that, I want to challenge you this morning to meet the person at the center of this account, that is Jesus. And when you meet him, you will be surprised because he actually rejects rigid morality. The idea that you must obey without thinking. You must obey to get right with God. He rejects that completely. 
And on the other hand, he also rejects the notion that you're just going to stumble upon God someday through your experience, and you're going to put God together in your own way. He rejects both of these notions, and what he gives you is life. So think along with me, and that's really what, when the disciples say to one another, come and see, they're saying to one another, come and discover with me this truth. Come and discover with me and think for yourself and meet Jesus and meet his teaching and meet what he's all about. And when you do, you'll find two things, and these are the two directions we're going today. Come and see, number one, see the one who knows you best, and number two, see the one who gives you life. See the one who knows you best and see the one who gives you life. That's where we're going today. John chapter 1, you can find it in your service folder on page 8. And the background to John 1 is this. John is writing. He's the gospel writer. He's Jesus' disciple, a very close disciple of Jesus. He writes in late in the first century A.D. He has experienced Jesus' whole ministry. He's seen his death. He's seen his resurrection. He's seen his ascension into heaven. And uh, he writes the last of the four gospels. And he writes it uh, not in the same style as the first three. He writes it in a unique style led by the Holy Spirit to tell stories about his eyewitness accounts and the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And so he's writing here, and his first, his first story that he tells from Jesus' ministry is about John the Baptist, a different John. And John the Baptist uh, had people coming out to him from Jerusalem, and when they came to him, John the Baptist would say, I want to tell you about this person who's coming, but I don't want you just to believe my word for it. I want you to believe the testimony. And when he arrives, I'm going to point to him, and you're going to go to him. Well, guess what? He arrived in Jesus of Nazareth. And when John and his audience saw it, when John saw him, he said to his audience, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you notice that what he's not saying? He's not saying, just believe me and don't think for yourselves. Um, no questions asked. He's actually pointing people to Jesus. And so a few of his disciples do follow Jesus. John loses a couple of his disciples. One of them is John, the gospel writer, we believe. Uh, he's unnamed, but we believe it's him. And the other is Andrew. Andrew and John, they go to Jesus and they ask Jesus, Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus says, well, come and see. Come and see. And they spend the whole day with Jesus asking him questions. He probably teaching them from the Old Testament about how the scriptures need to be fulfilled. And, and, and Andrew, after talking to Jesus, he says, I have to go tell my brother Simon. And so he runs off and he tells his brother Simon that evening and he brings him to Jesus. And before Simon even reaches out his hand to shake Jesus' hand and introduce himself, Jesus says, I know you, you are Simon. And from now on, you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we're introduced to Peter. Peter recognizes Jesus right away after getting to know him as the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And that's where this picks up uh, in verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, that's in northern Israel, Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right, so Jesus meets this person, Philip, we're introduced to. And Philip gets to know Jesus. Jesus teaches him about the Old Testament, about the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and about the work and, and, and who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And Philip is convinced because the Word of God is powerful. 
and meeting Jesus is meeting the Word of God. And so Philip believes, and what does he do? He goes and he finds a friend named Nathaniel. And he says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying, this isn't an idea that I'm, I'm pitching to you, Nathaniel. This isn't just a philosophy. He has a name, Jesus. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It means God saves. And this flesh and blood person has a hometown, Nazareth, we're going to talk about in just a moment. So he has neighbors and he has family and he has friends that can tell you if you ask them who he is. He's a real-life human being. And he has a genealogy. He has an adopted father named Joseph. And you can go and talk to his family. You can talk to his neighbors. He's real and he's here. And he's the one Moses and the prophets have written about. And then Nathaniel says, verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Imagine for just a moment that uh, there's an up-and-coming music superstar. And before the age of 20, she's already won three Grammys, and she's revolutionized the music industry for the next 100 years. She's going to become a household name if she's not already. Um, and she, she's, she's going to set the record for Grammys. She's multi-platinum, and it becomes a household name like U2 or like the Beatles or like Beyonce or Kanye West. She's really extremely popular. And then at the Grammys, they announce her and her biography, and they say, and hailing from, drum roll, but they don't say New York City, they don't say Los Angeles, they don't say Houston or Miami or even Austin. They say, hailing from Granger, Texas. <laughs> Granger, Texas. Most people in Texas would say, where is that? And if you've been, it's actually a fine town. I think they sell, uh, they sell worms at the corner store, and there's good fishing at the lake there, and I think there's a prison there, but it's not a notable town. It's not a town that you'd expect something great to come from. No offense to Granger, Texas. But that's what Nathaniel is saying. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip, are you kidding with me? Are you joking? Philip, have you been duped yourself? You know, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And maybe you're wondering to yourself, in this world, 21st century, when we're watching football games in 8K, and we have amazing content, in our palm every day and we have keynote speakers doing TED Talks with eloquent words and they come from flashy places and they have the most beautiful uh, thoughts and they have these awesome artwork and, and you, you might look at the Bible and you might say to yourself in its wrappings it's hard it's so simple it's so easy Nazareth But that's the brilliance of about where Jesus comes from. And when you're seeking the truth, and I know that many of you, maybe if you're watching or listening right now, are, and many of you that encounter people that are Christians are encountering these people, seek the truth, not the wrappings. Seek the one that's at the center. Listen to his words. Get to know him. Come and see. 
and don't become distracted by what is or what is not, that he comes from a backwoods town that nobody has heard about, that doesn't matter. That's not what made that great superstar a superstar, and that's not what makes Jesus Jesus. He comes to us not with the flashy lights of Jerusalem. He comes humbly, and that means he's accessible to all. He's accessible to the poor. He's accessible to the rich. He's accessible to the highly sophisticated thinker, and he's accessible to the baby. He is accessible to all, and he came from Nazareth. Philip, come and see. Come and see for yourself. He does come from Nazareth. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of of Israel. What happened when Nathanael met Jesus? He met the one that knew him the best. What happens when you and I meet Jesus? You meet the one that knows you the best. Because when he meets Nathanael, he says, I've read your whole life story, and you don't even know me, and I know you. You know, the word he says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The word for deceit here is dullus, which means to take advantage through craft and underhanded methods, cunning and treachery. Nathaniel is more of a 21st century thinker than you would believe. He is not easily duped. The wool cannot be pulled over his eyes easily. Um, he cannot be deceived. And in him, he's truthful, but then he also expects truthfulness out of other people. And so that's why he asks the questions that he does his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters, they could tell you in him is no deceit. But Jesus, without even meeting him, knew his name, knew his character, and he knew he was sitting under a fig tree. A fig tree, by the way, in those times and even today in those areas, a fig tree covers the ground and it makes a canopy with its leaves so that when you go under it, you can have peace and quiet and somewhat safety, privacy and shade. And if you're sitting underneath a, a fig tree, nobody can see you. And the only person that knows that you're there is what? You and God. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, but I know that you are under the fig tree, but I know where you were. Does that bring you comfort in 2021? That Jesus knows where you've been, what you've done, that he knows the secret parts of your life. Maybe some of you are saying to yourself, yeah, actually, that does bring me comfort right now. And I'm saying to you, that terrifies me. <laughs> and maybe it terrifies you too. Because I've met Jesus and Jesus says to me, Dan, I know you when nobody else has been looking. And I know places that you've been in your mind, in your soul, and in your spirit. That should terrify us. And it does terrify me. You're saying to yourself, but where am I going to meet Jesus? And how do I know that you meet Jesus in his word? Yes, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and he's ascended into heaven and he's no longer on this earth. But Jesus' disciple Peter, the, the Peter that met Jesus the night before, 
After Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter wrote to a group of Christians that never met Jesus face to face, and he said this, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. 2 Peter 1.19 You meet Jesus face to face in his word. That's where you meet him, because that's where his spirit is, and that's where his spirit speaks to you and me. And to know that Jesus knows every part of me, to open up his word when you do in Bible class, when you do here at church, when you open up your word in private devotion, the Bible says that he exposes the secret things in our heart. So you want to encounter Jesus? You encounter his word. Do you know that he knows your thoughts and intentions and that they're not always holy? The human mind is the most deceitful thing of all. It is incurable. No one can understand how deceitful it is. Jeremiah 17.9 He knows that your love isn't as far-reaching as the love that he expects out of you. You can encounter Jesus right here in his word. Matthew 5.43-45 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Wow. He knows that although you have it all put together on Instagram and on Facebook and you have this great life that you project onto other people and maybe you're very moral and very decent and, and you, you, you're a good spouse and you're a good brother and sister and a good student, he knows the truth that it's what's in the heart and what's in the mind that is also sin. When he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew 5, 28. Do you see where we meet Jesus? Do you see how terrifying it is to meet God? But I'm not bringing this up to you that Jesus knows every corner of your life and he knows your every sin to tell you that Jesus is there to condemn you. You have to listen to the rest of this story. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a term, Jesus' uh, favorite term for himself that he uses. He's referring to himself, and it's an Old Testament term taken from the books of Ezekiel and Daniel, and it refers to this bigger-than-life messianic figure that is the Ancient of Days, meaning that he is God, and he's saying that he's born of man. And when he says this, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on. What Sunday school story is he talking about? Do you know? These children would have known this from Sabbath school if they're Israelites, but it's from Genesis chapter 28, the story of Jacob, who actually is the original Israelite, right? He would be called Israel. And Jacob was not an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He actually had a lot of deceit, if you know his story. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father, who was blind and dying. Who does that? But he was truly a deceitful person, and that deceit had caused tons of trouble with his family, and so he is on the run. You can check this all out in Genesis 28. And uh, he's running from his problems. He has uh, a lot of sin that he's dealing with. And at the same time, uh, it feels like the whole world is coming down on him. And so one evening, 
he is tired and he stops for a break to rest that night and he pulls up and he fluffs up a nice little rock to put his head on. And if you think that 2020 and 2021 are difficult years, if you're pulling up a rock as your pillow, I think you've hit literally rock bottom. That is the worst 2021 right there. Anyways, he's pulling this up and all of a sudden he puts his head down on it and he goes to sleep. And what happens? God comes to him in a dream and God opens up heaven. And, and in heaven, there is the glory of God at the top and there are angels coming down and attending to his spiritual needs. And at the top is God and God is saying this. He's saying, Jacob, there's nothing in you that is worthy of my grace. There's nothing in you. In fact, there's all sin and deceitfulness. But he says, I am renewing my promise with you. I am giving you my grace in the place where you are sinful. And I will give you a future and I will give you a family and I'll give you a land. He said that to a sinner that didn't deserve it. And God made good on that promise. Now, here we are thousands of years later in John chapter 1, first century AD, and Jesus is saying to a believer in the same God, a sinner like Nathaniel, a sinner like you and me, he's saying this, the Son of Man is here. The one that was the glory of God saying, I'm going to rescue and redeem you and give you a future and give you a family to Jacob, Nathaniel, that glory has come down to live on earth and live in your place. Not because you earned it, or not because you deserved it, not because you're such a great person, not because you've had this rigid morality that you've kept your whole life and you've always done what pastor told you to do because the church tells you to do that because you're so obedient. He doesn't come to you because you've been searching so hard that you want to fall upon God somehow. No, he does it out of his, purely out of his love for you. And Nathaniel would go on to see greater things than Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree. Because Nathaniel, very often the commentators will say, is that disciple Bartholomew. And he went on to follow Jesus throughout his ministry. And he saw what Jesus did. He saw Jesus raise men off of mats. He saw him call corpses out of tombs. He saw him walk on the water. He saw him calm storms. He saw him take two fish and five loaves of bread and feed thousands of people. And Nathaniel himself was probably one of those disciples with a basket collecting leftovers, thinking to himself, greater things, greater things. The God of leftovers, the God who can provide all things, there would be even a greater thing than that that Jesus would give. Because his disciples, including Nathaniel, would watch him give his life on the cross. For them, and for you, and for me, for sinners that don't deserve it, he says, my life is yours, and my holiness is yours. Not because of what you've done, but because of my love for you. So follow. Come and see. Come and take what you know from me when you've met me in, your, in, in the Word. Come and take the power of your baptism as being washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Come and take what I give you at the Lord's Supper, the forgiveness of sins, my very presence, and go to your neighbor and say to them, even if they're skeptical, even if they've wondered about religion, even if they've wondered about finding God, Go to them and say, don't take my word for it. Come and see yourself. Come and see.
Come and see my God and my Savior. Come and see the one that gave his life for me. Come and see the one that knows me better than anybody else, even my mother, even myself. Come and see the one that gives you life, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.